0: From 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, NPR host Scott Detrow talks about his approach to politics coverage in a swing state like Wisconsin. Then we'll catch up with comedian Paula Poundstone ahead of her show in Milwaukee.
1: Everything as a podcaster is a guess. You know, when you're performing stand-up in front of a live audience, it's like you have the guardrails up in bowling. You really can't go into the gutter because the audience tells you.
0: Plus, we explore identity with a Milwaukee Afro-Latina artist.
2: Being Afro-Latina to me, it just means a huge pride of culture, beauty, and softness. And I feel like
0: it's very soft and sensitive. I just think it's a beautiful thing. All that's coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. As a reporter, Scott Detrow has covered Republican and Democratic presidential campaigns, Congress, the White House, and even the war in Ukraine from Kiev. But in recent months, Detrow stepped into a new role, host of Weekend All Things Considered on NPR. Now he also contemplates topics like blues music, new literature, and Popeye's chicken sandwiches. Detro joins WUWM's Mayan Silver in studio to talk about his transition and how to approach the 2024 election.
3: One thing that people might not know is that you actually went to Marquette University High School. Can you let us in on your Milwaukee roots?
4: (laughs) Yeah, my family uh, moved to Milwaukee when I was 16. Um, You know, I grew up in New Jersey and then we moved out here and like it's kind of, on one hand, it seems like it might be a worst case scenario. Like you are moving in the middle of your sophomore year of high school. Congratulations. Good luck. But actually like it was, didn't feel that way immediately at first, but it it was a wonderful experience. And um, I quickly connected and made really close friends in Milwaukee that I'm still in touch with. And and basically uh, lived here for all of high school. And it felt like it felt very much like home. And it felt like a very important part of my childhood being in Milwaukee. So it's It's nice to be back, and um, it's always been nice to have that baseline experience of living here and knowing here when, obviously, uh, Wisconsin is a very (laughs) important state for the stuff that I cover. So when when I'm here reporting stories, it's always nice to feel like a little bit like, okay. I know this place really well.
3: Yeah, that's the thing. You covered the 2016 Wisconsin primary when you were a campaign reporter following the Republican candidates. Yeah. Um, There were two primaries here that April. It was Clinton and Sanders on the left and Cruz, um, Texas Senator Ted Cruz and Trump on the right. Cruz beat Trump. Sanders beat Clinton in Wisconsin. What do you remember from your time in Wisconsin covering that primary?
4: (sighs) Two two images. One was being this big uh big event at Serb Hall, and it just it was really fun to be there, just because like there are so many iconic political scenes from from the years uh, there. Like I think a lot of people who cover politics or follow politics, the book Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail by Hunter Thompson is like this big looming thing, and there is these scenes of he's following around like the nineteen. 72 primary candidates to Serb Hall. So it's fun being there. And then the thing I remember is covering a Donald Trump Sarah Palin joint rally. And Sarah Palin coming out on stage to um to the tunes of 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 uh like like the like the jock chants like do 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 and I was like, this is a really this a really weird scene. Like what what is going on here? But I feel like that kind of was like an early indicator of just kind of like the Um, In a way that she was like a predecessor to the politics of Donald Trump of kind of like, this is what a lot of voters want. And it's not necessarily conversations about policy. It's kind of like politics as this like this cultural identifier, almost entertainment moment.
3: Well, and, you know, something that I think you've reported on was how unpopular Trump was at that time in Wisconsin in 2016. But then, of course, things changed. Yeah. And um, he ended up winning Wisconsin and winning the presidency. That's the elephant in the room that's continuing to, mm-hmm. you know, rear its head in this 2024 election. How, how have campaigns become so much more high stakes yeah. now?
4: I think, like, I'm trying to think back to that moment. And, and you're reminding me yeah, – like, like covering politics, it's, it's so dangerous to not learn lessons from what you've covered before, and it's also sometimes equally dangerous to learn lessons from what you've covered. Because I remember like, like some of the things that I thought were very clear based on evidence in the 2016 primaries was, well – maybe maybe um, rally sizes don't actually tell us that much about how popular a candidate is because Bernie Sanders got these massive rallies. He had those huge rallies in Madison, Wisconsin, right? Like he had, he had like this, this kind of like cult following, but he ended up ultimately losing the primary to Hillary Clinton. More people voted for Hillary Clinton than Bernie Sanders. Like, so it tells us something, but maybe it doesn't necessarily tell me anything. You know, and then I was applying that kind of wrongly to to the Trump campaign of like, he's got these big rallies, but does he really have this broad base? We saw kind of like a, a soft ceiling on his support within the Republican primary. Turns out he did have enough enthusiasm to win the presidency. And it turns out, uh, I think, You know, that that election made clear that partisanship goes so far that uh, on on both sides, and we're seeing it again with this election, at the end of the day, whether something is in your camp, whether someone is in your camp or not from your party, is almost like the main indicator. And it's really just at the margins of is is a candidate's behavior or personality so much that somebody's either going to not vote for the party they usually vote for or do the very extreme in the current environment step of voting for the other party.
3: Well, I mean, we could be seeing a Trump-Biden rematch in mm-hmm. 2024. I mean, that could it could not happen. And many people, including Biden, are sounding the alarm. Trump has four indictments, has been found civilly liable for sexual assault, and has suggested that General Mike Milley, um, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, should be executed for standing up against him in 2020. Yeah. Yet a majority of Republican voters still support Trump. What do you say to people who say that NPR can't normalize Trump and treat the potential of a second Trump candidacy as business as usual?
4: Well, look, it's an enormous challenge, right? And it became even more of a challenge based on what Trump did after the 2020 election, which was deny the results of an election and try to overthrow the result of an election, try to stay in power, even though he had lost the election and his term as president had ended. That culminated in, in the attack on the U.S. Capitol. And now we're seeing him face criminal charges for that. I mean, he is going to face a parade of trials. So on one hand, you have to keep that in mind. On the other hand, you have to report on what is happening. And I feel like so many people want to talk about quote, normalization and want to talk about, did the media give Trump too much attention in 2016? And I think there's very fair conversations to have, but I think there's also a danger in not covering what's going on and not telling people what a candidate is saying and being clear about what he wants to do. I mean, I think Trump has been very clear about what he would want to do if he retakes the White House. And a lot of that has to do with personal retribution more than any sort of like policy agenda. And I think it's important to talk about that. So how do you do it, right? What's the responsible way to do that reporting? And I think it is putting as much context as possible around it. And I think it is important to point out to people as much as possible that he is somebody who's facing criminal charges. He is somebody who was impeached twice. He is somebody who continues to deny the clear results of an election that he lost.
3: And at the same time you've you've also talked about this it's a time of increasing fatigue when it comes to politics people just don't want to hear about it. Yeah. They don't necessarily like the options they have. They might not be interested in politics in general. How do you as someone on NPR sort of make that make politics accessible or make these issues important to people again?
4: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, like I've I've actually I've switched jobs and I'm no longer a full time political reporter. Now I host All Things Considered on the weekends, So I'm I'm doing a ton of political coverage. But I'm also thinking about what are the other stories happening? And I think one thing that we saw when Biden took office and it was a lot less of like, oh, my God, it seems like Washington, D.C. is on fire every day, is that we were able to air more international news. We were able to air more like climate and science based news. A lot of the things that are really important that just. In that era, there wasn't as much space to talk about. So I think it is important to make sure, are we covering this in the right amount? Obviously, there's going to be this like seemingly existential election, and that's going to require a lot of our time, but there's other stuff to talk about, too. When it comes to like making politics accessible and making people want to keep listening... I feel like it's the strength that, that public radio does so well of of telling people stories, bringing you along to meet people, to learn about people, to learn about what how this affects their lives, telling stuff through stories, not just saying like this, not just lecturing, this is an important thing you need to know, but kind of like the show, not tell, get out there into the world and bring people along and teach them something and make them interested in the story.
3: Part of public radio and going into public radio is it allows you to think about so many things. I mean your show it's weekend all things considered. Yes. And so that's They're one serious
4: of... about that too.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Has there been something where you're like, I really don't want to consider that? And then they're like, You have to consider it.
4: There's so many things to consider each day. <laughs> that's, that's been the biggest surprise. I mean, like obviously not a surprise, it's in the name, but like, you know, as, as like a White House reporter you feel like you're juggling a lot of things because everything that happens in the world involves the president, right? You're like, you know, some sort of crisis happens in another country. You're trying to get the president or the national security team's reaction to it. Um, and, and that changes from day to day. But uh, but in this new job, like, I'll be doing a, st- a feature on, on voters. Then I, okay, now five minutes later, you have to do a really intense um, interview about uh, the police killing of an unarmed man, right? And then you have to wildly shift gears and go eat like a chicken sandwich on the radio. And you have to like reset your brain over and over again and prep yourself over and over again. And that's why like you're working with a great production team because sometimes you walk out of interview on one topic and you walk into the next door studio and you're like, okay, what are we talking about now? And somebody says, here's all the research I put together. You can skim it real quick and get yourself in the brain space to have a totally different conversation. So like, I appreciate that, but man, it's like, it's, it's wild sometimes how quickly you have to shift your brain.
3: So I was wondering, you know, to be that sort of well-rounded, holistic person, is there something in your history? I mean, you've spent a lot of time in public radio. You were a member station reporter. But I'm wondering if there's something in your history that you feel like you can draw from, like a hobby or some experience that you had that you draw upon to be this sort of, like, you know, public radio <laughs> host. I...
4: I guess I have always love to read and continue to love to read and love to read everything, like any genre, history, fiction, short stories, novels, poems. Like, I've always just, like, consumed information. You know, like, uh, I remember... You mentioned high school. I remember, like, struggling through math class and, like, sometimes sitting there skimming, like, a Newsweek or a Time magazine in the back row and paying more attention to, like, current events than math, which worked out okay for me in life, I think. Sorry to my math teacher. Um, (laughs) But, like, just just always, like, sucking in information. And I feel like over time I kind of developed the ability to, like, read pretty quickly and retain stuff, which has been, like, very helpful when you're like, okay – now we're talking about this topic read as much as you can for for an hour and then get into the studio and interview somebody about it so that's that's been really really helpful and i think like part of the appeal that that drew me to wanting to be a reporter to begin with
3: well it's been wonderful chatting with you scott um thank you for joining me on lake effect
0: thanks it's great to be here Scott Detrow is the host of Weekend All Things Considered. He spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver on a recent visit to Milwaukee. If you're a somewhat regular listener to WUWM, chances are you're familiar with the voice of Paula Poundstone. She's a regular panelist on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and also hosts the podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, which is kind of a comedy field guide to life. Poundstone has also been an influential voice in the American comedy scene as a stand-up comedian, and that's what's bringing her to Milwaukee this Friday. Ahead of her show at the Pabst, she joins me now. Paula, welcome back to Like Effect. It's good to speak with you again.
1: Thanks so much. Nice to speak with you.
0: So you've recently recovered from COVID. How you doing and feeling?
1: Uh, you know, I'm st- I'm still a little tired. I'll tell you the worst thing that happened uh, during COVID. Okay, there's two things. The first is the body aches were like historic, and I have a theory about it, which is when I was a kid, my older sister had a Barbie doll, and it was when the Barbie's legs used to be able to rotate like 360 in her hip socket so i used to sneak in and take that barbie doll and rotate barbie's legs in her hip socket and uh, you know looking back i think it probably was quite painful to barbie but i didn't think about that at the time uh, and so my theory about the body aches that centered in my hips is that it was the ghost of barbie returned and late at night while i was in the little bit of time that i could sleep uh, she was rotating my legs <laughs> 360 degrees in my hip socket You know, it's as good a theory as any.
0: I agree. Well, does that make you a little hesitant to come to Wisconsin? Because Barbie, the original doll, is apparently from the fictional town of Willows, Wisconsin. So you're coming into Barbie territory. Oh, my gosh.
1: Well, I feel she's gotten her revenge. So, (laughs) you know, I don't think she's going to chase me to the ends of the earth. I feel like, you know, what's done is done. You know, it was an eye for an eye or a hip for a hip, so to speak. <laughs> and then the other, the other. I mean, the, obviously none of it was pleasant, but probably the worst thing that happened as a result of COVID is, I was supposed to be on, wait, wait, don't tell me, the one that taped Thursday, September 28th at the Greek Theater, which is a, a you know, several thousand-seater amphitheater in Los Angeles, probably the only beautiful part of Los Angeles, I was supposed to have been on that show and I was promoting it on my social network. I was making videos about it. I was having a blast. And then I got sick and couldn't do it. And I, I begged uh the powers that be on the show. I'm like, put me in a Pope Mobile. You know, put me like off in the wing of the stage. I can just answer my questions. Like I'll I'll say stuff like uh Lemur's down his pants. Um because that's often you know lemurs down his pants is a solid answer for uh wait wait don't tell me you you are as likely to be correct with that answer as any
0: other it's pretty solid backup and i'm very glad to hear you are feeling better despite missing you know wait wait you're such a great staple on that show during COVID, for myself i really got into watching stand up and maybe it's because you comedians are great with dark humor and that's what I was going for at the time. Um, and of course, lots of comedians were putting out podcasts at the same time, like yourself. You're about three years <laughs> into Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone with Adam Felber. I, I what I think of, it
1: might be four years. Four years now. We had started at least a year before COVID hit. We were in, you know, we were in a studio and then when COVID hit, of course, we all had to go to our, you know, scurry to our homes and learn how to do it from there, which was a big challenge. Although, having said that, I do not miss... Somehow, I ended up having to drive the furthest to the uh, to the studio when we were doing it that way. And so whenever they bring up the idea of being back in the studio together, it might make for a better quality show, but whenever they bring it up, I'm like, oh, I don't really think so. <laughs> That's I don't fair. miss that drive. Um, But, uh, but yeah, um, nobody listens to Bella Poundstone, the comedy podcast. I think it's been up and running for about four years.
0: What have you found to work best with putting that show together? Foolishness.
1: You know, it's funny because I do different stuff on the podcast than I would ever have the nerve to do in front of an audience as a standup. I do goofy characters that call Adam on the phone. I just, I don't know. I think I give myself a broader, you know, since I'm not looking right at an audience, I I have no shame. A little Um, braver. Yeah, I'm a little shy on stage. I just would never have the nerve to do stuff like that. But doing it on the podcast has really, really been fun. And of course, everything uh, as a podcaster is a guess. You know, when you're performing stand-up in front of a live audience and you really can't do it any other way it's like you have the guardrails up in bowling you really can't go into the gutter because the audience tells you right you know once you start to go off the rails they let you know and so you pull back and you don't do that thing but in podcasting you know there's nobody there other than my co-workers and they're not even always paying attention and so uh it's a lot of guesswork so it's really great when i hear from audience members that tell me that there nobody listens to Paula Poundstone listeners and that they enjoyed or and a lot of what you hear is that it got them through the pandemic or we're not through the pandemic of course but it you know got them through the stay at home order or that it's getting them through these difficult difficult um, political times and that is so rewarding to hear because something has to get us through.
0: Absolutely. So when you are, now that you're ramping up your tour again, how do you switch those mindsets? Do you find you go into this just inherent, you have this memory and you're in stand-up mode when you're prepping for shows? What's your routine like?
1: I think it is like that. You know, a thousand years ago, I had a show on ABC really briefly. If you blinked, you missed it. But one of our, uh, our musical guests was Cab Calloway. And uh, long story short, Cab, by this time in his life, he was in a wheelchair. It was probably the his last performance he ever did. And when he came out on stage, instead of using a wheelchair, he insisted on using an office wheelchair. And he would dance, you know, while he was sitting down to the music and he fell. And uh, he, he continued to sing. It was, you know, hidey, 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 ho, and all the, you know, the great Cap Calloway stuff. Honestly, if you had edited it for, you know, just a few seconds out of the sound of him falling, you never would have known he fell. He was on the floor sideways, and his teeth knew that song. And that's kind of me as a stand-up. I mean, I don't do this same show every night, but I do think that there's a, a mental routine that I go into, uh, what's the word, like uh, it, it's subconsciously even, that just sort of puts me in that place and I go out and do it. And I have worked, you know, with things going wrong in my personal life or with, uh, you know, not feeling well or being tired or whatever. And, and I always end up pretty much in the same place um, because I think my teeth know how to do it
0: so with your long-standing career and your outlets whether it's podcasts wait wait don't tell me new stand-up material do you listen to other comedians or their podcasts or other artists in general to help you get inspired do you have that outlet
1: no i don't listen to anybody else and i work alone uh i do about two hours in a show in fact i forget where i was working recently where some comic wrote to me nobody i knew but he wrote to me via my public email and he wondered if he could open for me when I was coming to wherever the city was that he lived. And, uh, and I wrote back and I said, you know, uh, you know, thank you for your interest. And I said, I am the most selfish performer you'll ever meet. I said, I do two hours on stage and I am not willing to share my audience with anyone. I, I, I feel like I love the crowd that comes to see me. They seem to be happy coming to see me, and there's just no way I'm having somebody else do, you know, 20 minutes or 10 minutes or even five minutes uh, before I go on. I'm taking every every little teeny bit of it for myself.
0: Well, you are coming back to Milwaukee as a part of your stand up tour, and on the note of our fair city, I recently learned that your all-time favorite (coughs) comedy movie is Bridesmaids, which partially takes place in Milwaukee, or at least the B-roll does. So what makes this movie your favorite?
1: You know what? It is hands down, and there are a lot of funny movies, of course, but it is hands down the funniest movie ever made. And I had no intention of even liking it. Somehow I had heard a little bit about it before I went, which was, you know that it was a little crass but my daughters who were I think young adults at the time wanted to go to it and because I'm a kind and loving mother I put my own tastes aside and said okay I'll go and so the three of us went I'm telling you I was swept up in waves of laughter with the rest of the crowd part of it is that it's relentless you know there's not just one joke like it just kept building and building and building it is brilliant and that when I had every intention of hating it they really really captured debauchery very well (laughs) Uh, oh my god all the stuff on the airplane with the I can't remember the name of the actresses but there's the woman that was very sort of innocent and had gotten married at Disneyland and then the the very jaded cousin I think it was and they get drunk together uh, no, oh my favorite part. Gosh, it's hysterical. But. I feel like somebody, you know, audio taped me one time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what is it? She's like, "Shut up, you smell like pine trees and you have a face of sunshine." Like, <laughs> whatever that is. Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. I yeah, that sort of oddly defiant drunken thing where you want to tell someone that you Aggressive
0: support, aggressive defiance and support.
1: Yes. It reminds me uh, a, a thousand years ago I, when I had my wisdom teeth out when I was a young adult. I lived in San Francisco and I had it done at a dental school and because uh, I had no money. And uh, the guy who worked on me got a B. But as I was coming out of it, I still remember, and I wish I didn't, I still remember telling the oral surgeon, that i loved him and the poor guys it was two men and they you know they i'm sure they were trying very hard to be professional but it was just so stupid and awful that they laughed and i got mad in the way that that girl does in that scene i was like no no it's not just the drugs (laughs) <laughs> i love you i had to go back like a few days later for them to check the surgery oh. and then there were no drugs involved and uh, i was perfectly straight as were they and we all had the memory of me angrily insistent to the oral surgeon that
0: i loved him we broke up i'm sorry to hear that short yeah. short yeah. short-lived relationship
1: Yeah, but it was so passionate.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm glad to have spoken with you today in uh, another edition of, you know, let's call it your very long relationship with public radio. We're happy to have you in our little world here.
1: Well, thank you so much. I'm so looking forward to going to Milwaukee. They have some of the best crowds in the country and always look forward to being back at the past.
0: Paula Poundstone is a comedian, frequent panelist for NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and host of the comedy podcast Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. She'll be in town October 13th for a show at the Pabst Theater. Did you know you can listen to Like Effect as a podcast? Search for Like Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Like Effect interviews. Later in the show, we'll hear from a chef who's been serving up Creole Argentinian food at pop-ups in Milwaukee. But first, we'll speak with a Milwaukee artist about her Afro-Latina identity. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. WUWM is celebrating the rich cultural diversity of Milwaukee's Hispanic and Latino people during Hispanic Heritage Month. Today, WUWM's race and ethnicity reporter shares the last in a series of conversations she's had with Afro-Latinas here in Milwaukee. Anna Marie Edwards is a multidisciplinary artist of Cuban and black heritage. Edwards spoke with Taryn about how she found community in the South and how that transitioned to Milwaukee.
2: I started life actually in Knoxville, Tennessee. So I was there for a little bit and then I spent the rest or most the remainder of my childhood in Theodore, Alabama. So I just like to call the whole deep South home honestly, but where I found community in those places as an Afro-Latina girl, little girl, woman, teenager, like, it was mainly at school. I really went to public school, so, and it was pretty mixed down south, so there was no, like, there wasn't too much self-segregation. Um, a lot of different communities just already lived in the same neighborhood, so, There was no trouble on like finding people that look like me or anything like that. Not so much in school either. Other places that I found community down south is anywhere where there was food that was relatable. So any like spots that all of us went to as kids, like any fried chicken spots, seafood spots, or just if it was just us getting a bag of crawfish and sitting in someone's back porch, that's like where I found a lot of my community. And a lot of my community, as I got older, got tied in with hair care because I got more like aware of my hair and that I needed to learn how to deal with it. So it was just a lot of me reaching out to other girls and other guys and like asking where they got their hair done and getting to those places and I found community in like all those areas whether it was somebody's auntie's house or somebody's like grandmother's house I always seemed to make friends in those kind of places but fast forward I ended up in Milwaukee when I was 18 I graduated high school and I ended up getting a art scholarship at the Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design Mm -hmm. so I had a scholarship for a few places but after like some finance things, it was easier to make the move to Milwaukee, even though it was really far, but it was the lowest cost of living for a college student out of the five places that I had received money from. So that's how I ended up in Milwaukee.
5: So making that transition from like, you mentioned down south, like there wasn't really an issue finding, you know, your people. Did that change when you got to Milwaukee?
2: So when I got to Milwaukee, that's actually one of the first things I noticed. Like I moved to Milwaukee and I ended up being like one of the only black students in my classes. Or it was just a hassle to find other black students on campus that either Well, later in the school year. When I started making work more tied to my identity, it was my critiques became more and more silent. Not a lot of people were relating to the work. And I just had to do my dance and search for people on campus. Um I went through a few groups of people that I found on campus and really I found those people just by taking certain classes whether it's like it has to do with black art or some sort of like social justice class or mm-hmm. if there was a black professor on campus like I would always make sure to meet that person and everybody kind of would do the same thing. So when I started noticing that, I started asking you know, my people more questions like, why is it like this? Like, what's going on? I didn't do a lot of research about Milwaukee before I moved there, but I just remember getting lost one time and I ended up on the South side. It was my, one of my first times using a city bus. And when I ended up on the South side, <laughs> I was like, what in the world? It just felt like a whole new city. I saw like all the foods I grew up with, like whether it's empanadas or arepas or different Latin foods. But also later, a couple years later, I ended up living on the North side and I just saw the a bigger population of Black people. And I was just, that's when I kind of made a lot of research happen. And I was just like, realizing how segregated this city was Mm -hmm. and that's when my art really I would say I owe it to Milwaukee of why my art took a huge shift about identity in Black history.
5: Tell me more about that like how does your identity or Afro-Latino identity like comes out in your artwork and more about like how Milwaukee played a role in that.
2: Yeah, so first I'll just start with Milwaukee since that was like a big turning point. When I came to Milwaukee, I was doing a lot of just portraiture. I don't want to say basic work, but pretty basic work for me, like just drawing portraits, drawing still lifes and things like that. I made some crazy fashion pieces, but when I started having bad things happen to me in Milwaukee that were racially motivated, I started reevaluating my work. Mm-hmm. So at my ad, I was in this design class. I was studying W. E. B. Du Bois and like other Black designers that fascinated me. And a lot of my designs were just always, just there was always something wrong with them, or they were too colorful, or they just didn't follow this certain grid system. And a lot of Black designers don't do that, and I just felt really targeted in the program. So I ended up getting out of that program and getting into the new studio practice program at MyAD. Mm-hmm. And that program just gave me free expression. So from there, I utilized a lot of the things that would happen in the classrooms or my frustration with having really silent critiques and people not being able to talk about my work. I just started making work about that. I started making work about my hair because a lot of people would always want to touch my hair or ask me if it's mm-hmm. real. Things like that. It just felt really ignorant for me because I was like, what century are we in? (laughs) Like, I'm not (laughs) as an animal. So I started making work about not touching my hair and the frustrations with professionalism at the school for Black people. And then I started noticing where the intersection was with black and Latin people. And they shared some of the same stereotypes of being loud or being ghetto or being like too much, too aggressive. And those are things that I was starting to be called in the school. Cause I stood up for a lot of different things that would happen to other students especially when they would make work about their identity. And once I did, I started digging into my own identity. I started realizing how close Cuba and Africa really were Mm. and how they were in the diaspora and just post-colonialism times. Like everything started making more sense in my work when I started researching those things. So my main goal began to make these interactive works where people can learn. Because a couple years ago, a lot of schools really in the South, to be honest, started taking Black history out of educational institutions. Mm-hmm. So that's what triggered like that worldly thing that started happening is another thing that triggered like my want and need to implement Black history into my work because I'm like, okay, I'm Afro-Latina, yes, but like, you know, I'm Black. Right? Yeah. So I was like, to share the same history. So I just started just doing a lot of social experiments. Like how can I get people to look at my work and appreciate my work and not ignore it because it's about Black history, Mm -hmm.
5: but then take away something from that work. What does being Afro-Latino mean to you?
2: Being Afro-Latina to me, it just means a huge pride of culture, beauty, and softness. I feel like we're seen and depicted as thick-skinned, loud, and just out of order most times and in most publications and in media. But for me, it's it's peaceful, it's fun, sexy, it's very colorful. And I feel like it's very soft and sensitive. I just think it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful fusion of culture that shares a beautiful history that is rough around the edges, but it's just so beautiful. <laughs> like I can't explain how beautiful it is to me, but it's like a song almost, very poetic fusion of people and groups of people together.
5: Do you celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month and if so how? I try to celebrate it in a way
2: where I'm advocating but every Hispanic Heritage Month I try to write down some things that I can do to advocate for my people and just express my culture every day instead of just within the month. Same thing with Black History Month, like, I always reflect in the both months, like, how do you continue to advocate in peaceful ways that aren't exhausting? Right. But I think it's just all for specifically Hispanic Heritage Month is actually making Blackness more visible and appreciated in Latin communities. Because I am an artist who does recognize anti-Blackness in in Latin communities, because it does exist and I'm not going to be, you know, like an Afro-Latin person that's just going to ignore that. Mm -hmm. So I always try to figure out ways to implement those things to make Afro-Latinas visible in the Latin community, because I feel like that is important. And I think it's just something that's looked over or not really talked about often. And I think it fuels an identity crisis almost. Mm -hmm. So I just sort of, want to continue to find ways to make us visible.
5: Absolutely. And I think that goes right into the next question I was going to ask, because you talk about what you try to do personally and even just beyond the month, especially making blackness more visible. Do you see that happening? Like when you look at Hispanic heritage month celebrations more broadly, you know, in different cities, whatever the case, do you see like Afro Latino inclusion kind of being intentional
2: yeah so back home in Alabama and also in Tennessee like I did meet you know some uh, groups of people that were interested in making that a priority in Hispanic Heritage Month like when Hispanic Heritage Month would come about like that would be one of the first topics is to not forget that there is blackness in our communities too and like these people do exist in our community and we should accept and learn about these people as well but I feel like it's very little though like in in a broad sense it's there but I feel like there could be more and that's a frustration for me because I just feel like it's that Anti blackness that kind of stops it a little bit Mm -hmm. or a lot, (laughs) just being real. And the more conversations I have with people, and the more I've implemented my work into the world, people end up asking me more questions, like especially Latin people, and they end up learning a lot. It's in a process of growing. Mm
0: Anna Marie Edwards is a multidisciplinary artist of Cuban and black heritage. She spoke with WUWM race and ethnicity reporter, Taryn Powell as a part of our Hispanic Heritage Month coverage. You can find more of those stories and other conversations from Taryn's series with Afro-Latinas at wuwm.com. We wanna hear your story ideas for Like Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation you'd like to hear on Like Effect, give our community connection line a call. That number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lake effect. We'll take one more break and then hear from a chef who brought a totally new experience to Zocalo Food Truck Park this summer. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. This summer, an Argentinian chef has been serving up open fire barbecue in a series of pop-ups at Zocalo. He's cooking a range of meats and vegetables in the Creole Argentinian style that he learned from his family as a young man. WUWM's Lena Tran speaks with Well DeVue, the chef and owner of La Mano de Dios. She's also joined by Marissa Tapia, DeVue's girlfriend.
6: Anticipation is on the menu for pretty much anyone who walks by Huel de Vieu's setup at Zocalo, the food truck park in Walker's Point. He's the chef behind La Mano de Dios, or the Hand of God. It's a soccer reference. But there is something transcendent about the way Huel tends to the flames in this hours-long barbecue tradition called the asado. Are they hot?
7: Oh, really hot,
6: yeah. yeah.
7: Yes, yes it is.
6: It's a feast for the eyes. A huge metal table where several low fires are burning. There's a New York strip on a crossfit that leans into the flames. Whole vegetables smolder on the embers. Cabbages, bell peppers, eggplants. There's a mountain of onions, their skins charring to black. Qu'elle uses a shovel to tend the coals. This food takes time. Quell started in the late morning, and since then, people who have walked by take one whiff and ask whether they can order. Come back around one, he tells them. Quell has been popping up at Socolo all summer. I talked to his girlfriend, Marissa Tapia, about how she and Huel met, which is how he came to Milwaukee.
8: So, I'm from Milwaukee originally, like born yeah. and raised here. My parents are both immigrants from Mexico. And I was living in Portland. I went there for grad school. He was in Portland for work, and we um, were at a concert and we met. Uh-huh. And I don't know. We're at, attached at the hip ever since, I guess. And then
6: just the way Marissa and Juel were used to living like nomads, but she wanted to come home for the summer, so she connected him with an old friend and the co-owner of Zocalo.
8: And uh, anyways, they talked while we were in in Portland. He's like. Near Milwaukee do a pop-up yeah. weekend and uh, like we don't have any of that kind of food here um, I think that'd be like really cool for Milwaukee and just the show aspect and um, we came and well I think did his first pop-up of Harley Fest weekend and it went really really well and we've just kind of been doing it ever since uh, not every weekend.
6: Well's been cooking like this for almost 20 years. When he was 18, back in Argentina, his family opened a restaurant. Uh, bueno, I a
7: cocinar. Mi hermano era gastronómico a partir de los 17 años. Eh, mi hermano es mayor cuatro años que yo. Cuando yo tenía cuando yo tenía 18 años. Eh, my family decidió abrir un restaurant familiar y ahí me introducí en la gastronomía en So yeah
8: so his his brother got into you know cooking um his brother's four years older yes. and um, anyway when he turned eighteen his family decided to open up a restaurant they're from Santa Rosa, Santa Rosa de Calamuchita, Argentina, which like the closest big town is Córdoba.
7: No dije algo antes que my familia is es, que my abuela cocina, my padres cocinan. Yeah, claro, so de, de cooking is in
8: his blood, his grandma, his grandparents cook, his parents are amazing cooks as well. So it's just something he like just grew up
6: around. This Creole-Argentinian cuisine goes back to the gauchos, nomadic horsemen who raised cattle on the grasslands in the early 1800s. And you've described the cooking as, like, Argentinian creole cooking. Is that...? What is creole culture, I'd say?
7: Ah, qué... Acá está el lío complicado. ¿Qué?
8: Como para ti, como...?
7: La cultura es por los gauchos. Los gauchos son las personas que trabajaban en el campo. The
8: gauchos who are, like, think of the rural, what they say, campesinos, like, campo. um, I don't think in America we'd have an exact um, equivalent. Maybe if our cowboys had been
6: top chefs. I don't know what... (laughs) (laughs) The food is cooked simply, seasoned with just smoke and salt. It's served with vibrant chimichurri and salsas
8: so que okay, como ha notado como no es que agregando la comida no es la carne el vegetal así y sí tal vez una salsita al lado un chimichurri que les sa el sabor pero no es como que le hace mucho la comida no nomás, No
7: nomás yo pienso bueno. que la comida la, la la cómo cocinamos las carnes
4: uh-huh.
7: sabemos hacer es salmuera que es una es un agua de sal con algunas hierbas salmuera salmuera con, con eso se va como salando la carne Brine. se va con mm-hmm. con esa salmuera que se llama so
8: they make this like kind of salt water mixture with some herbs, salmera and as they are cooking they, they kind of like throw that on there
7: para darle pocos aromas a la aroma. carne yeah. más que sabores y aroma para,
8: more than flavor he said
7: personalmente me gusta Los sabores reales de la carne solo sal. Personally
8: he likes like the real flavor to come through. He only really likes to add maybe salt. There's a funny saying he taught me though. Uh, for them, dile como te dice que te So vuelta vuelta. if you were asking him how does he like his meat done, dile?
7: Vuelta y vuelta.
8: Which vuelta just means y vuelta. Vuelta y vuelta. one side, turn. Side. One turn. Basically, yes almost bleeding (laughs) (laughs) inside.
6: I asked whether cooking this food, food that he made with his brother, his family, food that comes from home, makes him think of home.
8: Uh, so so, so, so si sí, sí, como cocinando así, si sí te, te acuerdas, no, memoria. Me hace sentir
7: muy bien poder hacer esto que tanto me gusta. Y, ¿Te acuerdas de eh, vivir en Argentina? Sí.
8: Que si sí, te hace, como cuáles recuerdos te, a veces te.
7: Eh, todos los recuerdos para mí gastronómicos son de, de haber, yo lo disfruto al 100% ¿no? Y compartir en Entonces, familia te hace
2: y, acordar de tu eh, casa compartir en
7: familia resiste. yo trabajé mucho con mi hermano con mis hermanas con mis padres en esto así que, yeah. que más que un recuerdo me, me hace sentir cercano no no sé cómo explicarlo yeah, pero
8: more than it it helps him kind of like feel still like close like maintain that tie to them and like still doing this Something that he shared doing with his family being able to do it here on his own he kind of like I don't know it helps him still feel connected to them yeah. in that way
6: Zocalo has helped other businesses, like La Mano de Dios, get their start. For Huell, it offered a community with other small businesses.
8: Yeah, Milwaukee's just really welcomed him with like, yeah. open arms. Ever since he arrived here, everything's just really been so fluid and I don't know how it feels like. Milwaukee loves Huel. Well. <laughs> yeah, I think this cooking's been really appreciated here. I know growing up here, pig roasts, are like such a huge deal, everyone loves like a pig roast, and it's, it was really cool. One weekend we had folks come, there are a lot of folks from up north, like really rural Wisconsin, and um, I think all their wives and girlfriends were at a country concert or something. So the husbands are here and they're like, wow, pig roast. You don't see much of that down <laughs> here in Milwaukee. And, and, and it's cool because I just feel like this type of cooking appeals to like across like Class across like race,
6: you know. Um, meat and vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And the great outdoors. And the great
7: outdoors. Yeah. Agregar solamente agradecido de todo, no? De de poder de reconocer lo que hacemos acá It's, it's great great to be
6: able to share so. what he loves. Zokalo has also meant flexibility. Quell and Marissa enjoy their freedom. It's what brought them together. And it's what will keep them moving to wherever life takes them next. Quell just wrapped up the last pop-up of the season last weekend. He's a little scared of a winter in Wisconsin, so the couple thinks they'll head somewhere warm. But he says he'll be back next year. For Lake Effect, I'm Alina Tran.
0: Well, de DeVue is the chef and owner of La Mano de Dios. You also heard from his girlfriend, Marissa Tapia. They spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran. And that's Like Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Like Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Like Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Like Effect, we'll speak with one of Milwaukee's labor leaders, Jesus Salas, about the roots and legacy of the farmworkers' movement. Plus, we'll tell you about a former Milwaukee Symphony conductor who filed an official complaint over a foghorn of all things. That's tomorrow at noon on Like Effect, right here on Listener Supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.